Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk to the head of an agency that works to reduce the problem of child abuse. The American Lung Association is out with its annual State of the Air report. More about that in about 20 minutes. In the second half hour, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend covers topics that include the difficulties in getting people to work as officials, such as umpires and referees, in school sports in Ohio. The dangers that ODOT workers face in highway construction zones. An effort to help teachers who spend their own money on school supplies and the infant mortality rate in Ohio. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with someone from the U.S. Department of Agriculture about invasive species in Ohio. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Lindsay Williams, who is the Executive Director of the Ohio Children's Trust Fund. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us what the Ohio Children's Trust Fund is. Absolutely. We are Ohio's sole dedicated public funding source for child abuse and neglect prevention. We also serve as the state's chapter of Prevent Child Abuse America. Okay, so when you talk about funding for such things, what does that mean? We are a funder um, of programs across the state that help to strengthen and support parents and families um, so that they have access to the tools and resources that they need um, to really help their children grow and thrive. Um, and we, we seek to you know support parents before they would get to a point of um, any sort of, of crisis or challenge with the goal of preventing child abuse and neglect. And April is National Child Abuse Prevention Month. How big of a problem is it in Ohio? Child abuse and neglect is a fairly big problem in Ohio and across the nation. Um, We probably have an average of one confirmed case of uh, child abuse and neglect about every 29 minutes in Ohio. Wow. It seems like most people... They think uh, in terms of uh, children's services at the county level investigating, is that more often than not how, uh, how these things proceed? And so we're we're actually more focused on the prevention side. Um, you know, when when individuals in the communities have a concern that a child may be being maltreated, um, there are um, local hotlines available for them to reach out to their county public children's services agency. And there's actually a statewide number for reporting one eight five five O H child, and that can connect you with the um, appropriate agency in your community. Um, At the trust fund, we say we focus more upstream, Um, so we really want to connect with families in the community to provide kind of some of those more universal parenting supports, maybe mentoring programs, um, maybe connecting parents with concrete supports and resources, um, especially newer parents or um, low-income parents, to to really kind of help um, them be better parents, be, be more, you know, um, stable, understand um, child development so that um, those um, problems that could lead to abuse or neglect are prevented before they would ever occur. Well, sometimes, you know, you hear people talk about how it's harder to get a driver's license than it is to be a parent. There are no rules or regulations about that. And I guess some of these and programs... It's a hard job, probably the hardest job you'll ever have. Right. And, and I guess some of these programs that you have kind of pick up the slack where 
some people may go into it not knowing exactly what they're doing and need, needing to be guided. Yeah, absolutely. We, we fund a lot of um, different parenting support programs at the local level. Um, we, we kind of have a regionalized approach to that. We have eight regional prevention councils across the state with community members that come together and, and kind of look at the specific needs and resources for that area of the state and determine what programs are going to be um, most suitable for families in their local community. Um, so we do a lot of work related to that. We also have some statewide programs, um, you know, to support um, families. Um, you know, one such program is our Early Childhood Safety Initiative program, um, and that's been really successful in recent years. Talking with Lindsay Williams, Executive Director, Ohio Children's Trust Fund. How do you or does your agency coordinate or work around domestic violence groups because they're kind of intertwined, child abuse and domestic violence? They, they can be um, intertwined. Um, you know, when you think of um, adverse childhood experiences, so these are all of the challenges that, that children experience up to and including child abuse and neglect. Um, you know, family violence is definitely a part of that. Um, and so it's just really offering those resources and making connections to those groups um, where you may have, you know, moms or dads that, that may have those higher risk factors for abuse and neglect and need some of those additional support to uh, safely, um, you know, parent their children. When the pandemic hit in 2020, what did that do to the family dynamic and has it had an impact on child abuse numbers in Ohio or nationally? Yeah, absolutely. It did. In Ohio and nationally, um, when the pandemic hit in 2020, what we saw was um, this decrease in reporting. And we know that that wasn't, you know, attributed to the fact that, that less abuse or neglect was happening. Um, potentially, you know, it, it could have been more because when you think about increased parenting stress um, and increased, you know, economic stress for families that can be a risk contributor to child abuse and neglect. But what what had happened with um, everyone, um, you know, being socially isolated and um, schools going to the virtual schooling was a lot of those um, mandated reporters, a lot of those community members, coaches, um, you know, pastors, neighbors um, that, that previously would have eyes on children and maybe be able to, you know, bring up some of those concerns they were seeing were not seeing um, um, kids. Now, since that time, um, numbers and reporting numbers have um, kind of bounced back to, um, you know, what we typically see, but there was definitely a decrease there for a while. That must have been a, a really scary situation for someone in your position because if, the, if it's parental abuse, as you said, the kids have become isolated away from schools and mentors and virtually locked up in the home with their abuser. Potentially, yes. So, so during the pandemic, um, you know, our organization and the providers that we work with really shifted their focus and it, um, from, you know, providing a lot of in-person services to providing a lot of virtual services. So, um, you know, some steps that we had taken during the pandemic was, you know, really, um, you know, developing some community support resources that are available on our website to, um, you know, parents and providers. Um, a lot of our providers 
um, you know, we had them checking in with um, the families that they would serve and seeing if they needed any additional supports or resources. Um, and we really saw a big shift towards, um, you know, the need for providing concrete economic supports during that time. So, you know, with, with the kids being home, that's additional food items and things like that. Um, and we did a lot of messaging around, um, you know, checking in with, um, you know, the families that you know that may need a little bit of additional help for those parents um, during that time. So that's kind of how we approached it, um, you know, through that prevention line. Does your agency get into uh, dispensing information about, uh, you know, signs of child abuse that people should be watching for if they if they know of a child and, and they may suspect something's going on? Yeah, I can speak to that. We do a, a little bit of work um, training mandated reporters, um, like for, um, you know, daycare providers and early childhood and things like that. Um, they're... Um, Signs of child abuse and neglect, there's, there's physical signs, and then there's emotional signs, and then there's behavioral signs. Um, you know, so obviously physically bruises or injuries, especially injuries that would not be consistent with the developmental age of a child. So, for example, um, you know, a non-mobile infant um, typically would not have, um, you know, bruising. Um, and a lot of times, you know, as, as kids become toddlers, you're going to see bruising as they learn to walk and they have those normal bumps and bruises, but there are certain areas of the body where those are more typical. Um, you know, in terms of behaviors, if you see, um, you know, significant behavioral changes with a child, so maybe um, a child that's normally very active and outgoing that you, you know, notice um, starts to become very withdrawn, or maybe a child that's normally pretty um, calm, if they start displaying, you know, atypical signs of aggression for their personality, those are some signs to um, look for, um, you know, significant changes in maybe their grades at school or their interest in hanging out with um, friends or, um, you know, people outside of their family, those could also be potential signs. In looking at your uh, bio, I see that for over 15 years you've been a child advocate and involved in child welfare. You were a volunteer with a, as a court-appointed special advocate. You obviously have a lot of passion for this. Has there been an addition of services and better resources over the years for uh, this situation? There really has been. Um, you know, it, it's constantly an evolving field. I think one thing that has always struck me over the years is that, you know, the individuals that work in, um, you know, children's services agencies that, that want to help strengthen families and protect children are truly passionate about the work. And, um, I mean, it, it's, it's a tough field to be in, but it's a very rewarding field to be in. Um, you know, we've seen a huge shift in even, you know, maybe the last three to four years um, towards more of a prevention lens. And, you know, for, for, for many years it was always, you know, how do we support families or how do we, you know, help these children um, after abuse or neglect has occurred. And in more recent years there's been a really concerted shift to how do we start, you know, interacting with families sooner and engaging families sooner? Um, because, you know, for the most part, you know, parents want to be good parents. They love their kids. They, they want to take care of their kids. 
Um, you know, some parents struggle with maybe, you know, mental health problems or, um, you know, substance um, abuse issues that, you know, um, impact their ability to care for their kids. So how do we connect with them sooner and provide them those supports before it becomes a crisis that would, um, you know, escalate to abuse or neglect for children. So is it a matter mostly of you going to these parents, or are they connected through another agency, or how does that joint uh, effort begin? Yeah, it's definitely a joint effort. So, um, you know, we offer, um, the, the Ohio Children's Trust Fund offers a number of grant programs across the state. Um, again, we have our regional prevention councils that receive funding every year, and they have experts in their local communities that come together, um, kind of assess the needs of those local communities and determine what programs are going to be um, a best match for their families. Um, and then, you know, sometimes we'll look at broader statewide efforts as well. Um, so, um, you know, public awareness campaigns. Um, I, I had mentioned earlier our Early Childhood Safety Initiative, which is a program that really started to, that we really started to stand up at the beginning of the pandemic. And that provides um, just these brief parent education sessions paired with, um, we, we say provision of concrete support items, but what that essentially means is if I'm a, you know, um, a lower income parent and I need maybe help with um, a crib or a car seat or, um, you know, child safety gates for the house or maybe a stroller, um, some sort of item like that, I could reach out to one of my local providers and, um, you know, they would help educate me maybe if, it's, if I'm getting a high chair, maybe they're going to educate me on um, and the nutrition. If I'm going to, if I need a car seat, they're going to educate me on how to properly install a car seat and then um, kind of providing those supports for families. So, so we really reach families um, kind of in a variety of different ways, and we always strive to kind of meet families where they're at. Um, you know, I think an important message is that, you know, parenting is a hard job, the hardest job you're ever going to have, and all parents um, are going to need, you know, help and support sometimes. And it's okay to, to seek out those help and supportive services. Um, because that just, you know, that just means that you are, you know, striving to be the best parent you can be. Talking with Lindsay Williams, Executive Director, Ohio Children's Trust Fund, just a moment or two to go here. I wanted to ask about uh, the annual awards, I guess, that you present, the Everyday Ohio Hero Awards. Can you tell us about that? Yes. Um, every year in April, we, we really um, talk about our Be a Hero in the Eyes of a Child campaign, and that just speaks to the important role that a single trusted adult supporter um, can have um, for a child. And so um, every year we honor um, Everyday Ohio heroes across our eight prevention regions. So here in central Ohio, um, Michaela Wilson received the award for her work as a case manager for youth who have experienced um, sexual exploitation and um, human trafficking. In Cleveland this year, we honored Michaela Lang, who um, herself had grown up in foster care and is currently helping kids nearing the age of 18 in foster care transition to independence. Um, and then in Toledo, we gave the award to Jenna Rambo, and she is a Help Me Grow Home Visitation Program Coordinator um, working with expectant parents to build their, their caregiving skills and encouraging bonding. So, so we have these heroes throughout the state, and we are truly, you know, 
um, as a state, just very lucky to have such incredible um, everyday Ohio heroes throughout the state that are working to help children and families. It's outstanding. Uh, I wanted to ask, you know, a lot of times we hear about this cycle that's difficult to break of somebody who is abused as a child who is perhaps more likely to be an abuser when they get older. Does it also work the opposite way? Are there many people who are strong child advocates who perhaps were abused and, and want to make a difference when they become adults and get involved in it? Oh, absolutely. You know, what we see a lot of times, and, and this is something that, you know, research has been emerging on throughout the years, and I'll just kind of tell you a story dating back to my early days as a child welfare caseworker. Um, you know, a lot of times I would see situations where you would see individuals that have just had, you know, um, been through some really extraordinary circumstances. And, you know, sometimes you'd have one person that would really seem to overcome it and thrive into adulthood, you know, maybe um, then wanting to give back and be a support to other children or really being, you know, an active member in their community. And then somebody, you know, else that have had similar circumstances that really struggle with, you know, depression, anxiety, mental health, substance abuse into adulthood. And you always wonder, like, what makes the difference between those two individuals and how did they both kind of come out of similar circumstances, somebody thriving and somebody not. And research over the years has really been starting to point to now that positive childhood experiences can help mitigate the impacts of some of that adversity. So things like like, um, you know, having trusted adult supporters outside of the home, having somebody that you can talk to about your feelings that understands, you know, um, what you're going through, feeling, um, you know, accepted and included at school, things like that can be positive childhood experiences that help um, individuals to um, kind of build resiliency to, to the impacts of those negative experiences such as abuse or neglect. It's great, too, because it shows that people who do, maybe not even in a direct way, but are in, in some way influential around kids, perhaps because of what they do in life and when kids see them doing that job and maybe admire them, it shows the level of influence and importance that just about anybody can have if they're in that environment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of times, you know, and that's that's really um, kind of the thought behind our um, Be a Hero in the Eyes of a Child campaign. Our tagline is, you know, be a hero in the eyes of a child, one simple act of encouragement at a, at a time. Because you, you never know when those simple acts of encouragement and, um, you know, that, that support and that guidance that you're giving to a youth is really going to impact them um, and make a difference long term in their life. If people want more information about some of the services that are provided, uh, how do they find out about that? Um, they can go to our website, octf.ohio.gov. Okay, talking with Lindsay Williams. She's the executive director, Ohio Children's Trust Fund. Anything else you'd like to add? Um, I think I would just encourage everybody out there, um, you know, to be kind to children, to, to go out there, to make that difference, to be encouraging, um, because you never know what someone is going through, and those simple acts of kindness every day can really make a huge difference. Good stuff. Uh, Lindsay Williams, again, Executive Director, Ohio Children's Trust Fund. Thanks so much for your time today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Ken Fletcher. He is the Director of Advocacy for Michigan and Ohio for the American Lung Association. How are you? I'm doing great this morning. Thanks for having us on. Thanks for talking to us. You're out with your annual State of the Air report. Tell us about this report and uh, how long it's been around and, and what it's used for. Yeah, well, the American Lung Association's annual air quality report really is a report card that tracks the grades uh, that Americans' exposure to unhealthy levels of ground-level ozone air pollution, which is also known as smog, and annual particle pollution, which is known as soot, and the short-term spikes that we see in particle pollution. And the the report covers a three-year period, 2018, 19, and 20. And we found that, you know, uh, this year's report reveals that nearly 9 million more people were impacted by deadly particle pollution than last year's report. We saw more days with very unhealthy and hazardous air quality than ever before in the two-decade history of putting out this report. So that's something that has us greatly concerned. Was that something that was surprising, given that I guess one of those years anyway would have included the big shutdown year of the pandemic? Absolutely. Uh, the, the fact that we really didn't see any significant overall improvements uh, in this report as a result of that year was was quite troubling. Uh, I had hoped that we would see improvements. You, you never want to see us go backwards. Over the you know the many years since we've had the Clean Air Act in place, we've seen dramatic uh, in, improvements in the air quality all across the country. But there's still far too many places now that still have unhealthy air, and we still have progress that we need to make. So that's really what this annual report is about, letting people know exactly what is the air quality in their area, and then hopefully encouraging our policymakers to you know, keep that focus on making improvements so we can move it so everybody has clean, healthy, healthy air to go out, and we don't have these days where uh, we have ozone alerts or high particle pollution days where people who, especially those who are sick or ill with you know, asthma, COPD, lung cancer, those who are pregnant, those who are elderly, those who are young really have to, you know, think about whether or not they want to be outside and be exposed to that air. So we need to make sure that people don't need to worry about that, that they always have clean air available. Where are the most troubling areas in Ohio? Well, quite frankly, we saw, you know, things worsen in a lot of areas up in the Cleveland area, definitely saw our ozone pollution worsen. They're now ranked tied for 27th most polluted in the nation. So that's very troubling. Um we did see a little bit of improvement in terms of the uh, particle pollution for the Cleveland area, but definitely that ozone pollution is something that we're very uh, concerned about. Then in the Dayton area, we ended up seeing, you know, a worsening of the air quality as well. Um, so, you know, that's something that we're very concerned about. Columbus, though, was a little healthier. They've seen some significant improvements uh, in the Columbus area. So that's something that uh, we should be uh, glad about. They're tied for 84th most pollution polluted. So that's their best level ever with fewer unhealthy air days. And they were ranked 99th uh, most polluted for the short-term particle pollution. Um, um, So that's uh, that's great. And they also uh, improved in their year-round particle pollution. So we have seen some improvement, but definitely the Cleveland area needs to, uh, you know, do something and, and improve the air quality because there's still far too many uh, high uh, ozone level days that need to be uh, addressed. Your uh, report breaks down uh, county areas, too, where monitoring takes place. And you can see how 
Uh, I guess the wind in some cases can carry this because Lake County northeast of Cleveland was very high in in some of their uh, ozone alert days, I guess, downwind from Cleveland and also Butler County and a little bit north of Cincinnati in that area also seems to suffer a bit. Well, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, we really need to work as a nation to have good air quality standards, good ozone pollution standards that everyone must meet because pollution does drift and carry according to the wind. You know, we're seeing some of the particle pollution that's going into the air out west drifting, you know, for, further east than you would even really realize. So so what goes on in one area does can uh, definitely can end up impacting another area. So that's why we need to work on these problems as a nation and make sure that we, you know, clean up our air everywhere in terms of, you know, we take the steps to, you know, clean up our dirty coal burning power plants and our other factories that we work to get, you know, our make that transition to electric vehicles, zero emission transportation sector, where we get the gas burning automobiles and trucks and buses off the road and make that transition so that we can have clean air everywhere. And there's no part of the country that's creating the pollution that then can go and impact other areas. Talking with Ken Fletcher from the American Lung Association, the Director of Advocacy for Michigan and Ohio, uh, President Biden this week uh, started up a, a program to help financially troubled owners of nuclear power plants with bailout projects to keep those plants open. Has the Lung Association taken a stand on that yet? Well, you know, our position is we want to see a transition transition to clean, renewable energy, Uh, wind power, solar power. Those are all the sources of energy that does not create uh, other sources of pollution, do not create other problems. So we definitely want to see our power sector make those transitions and move to where they're uh, hopefully one day 100% renewable energy. And uh, where can folks find this information online, Ken? Oh, you can find our report at www.lung.org. Okay. Anything else you'd like to add? Just that it's something that we all really need to work together as a country. You know, everybody deserves to have clean air to breathe, and we've made great progress. So we need to make sure that we continue moving forward, and we need to get it so everybody can have an A grade when it comes to ozone and particle pollution, and everybody can go outside and, and, and feel safe and healthy. Okay. Ken Fletcher, American Lung Association's Director of Advocacy for Michigan and Ohio. Thanks so much for your time today. A pleasure to be here. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com. Fan.com and thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. 
minutes back to the drawing board after the state Supreme Court rejects another set of district maps. We have reaction from two members of the committee. There are renewed efforts to change the requirements to vote in Ohio, what one lawmaker wants to add to the list of must-haves. And students walk out of school in protest of House Bill 616. We ask the governor where he stands on the proposed ban on teaching sexual orientation and gender identity to young children. Thank you so much for joining us for Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. It's happened again for the fourth time. The Ohio Supreme Court struck down the newest set of legislative maps. The court said the maps were unconstitutional and gerrymandered. One member of that committee, Senator Vernon Sykes, tweeted saying he hopes the Republicans will work with the Democrats to draw maps in an open and transparent manner. The governor's office tells us they are still reviewing the ruling, but the governor is concerned that the process is moving away from competitive districts because of this back and forth. The current May 3rd primary will not include state, House and Senate seats. Early voting is underway for other races. This week, Ohio's poll worker tracker showed 24 counties have met the minimum number of poll workers needed. There's also concern that even more poll workers will be needed for the second primary. Ohio lawmakers say they may soon consider a change in requirements for voting in our state. State Senator Teresa Gavarone, who's running for Congress, introduced some new legislation. Under Senate Bill 320, Ohioans would be required to show a photo ID when voting in person. Voters who choose to vote by mail would be required to provide both of the following. Driver's license and or state ID number or a photocopy of their driver's license or state ID. The last four digits of their social security number. The bill also provides every Ohio citizens 17 years or older the opportunity to get a free state identification card. Senator Gavarone cites 2021 polling that shows 80% of Americans support requiring a photo ID. And she told me the change would improve election integrity and security in our state. What do you say to uh, critics of these kinds of uh, legislative efforts that say it's it's meant to close voting to people of color? I find that insulting, honestly. Why? Well, to to say that there are are people who won't be able to get an ID because of the color of their skin. I mean, that's um, we want to make sure that an ID is accessible to everybody. Well, I think I don't know that that's the criticism. I think the criticism is that it makes it more difficult for people to vote if you're changing the rules. Well, it's it's important that everyone be able to get an ID, show an ID, show a photo ID. We want to make sure everyone, regardless of, of you know, regardless of race, everyone should be able to, to vote, to have that ID. Um, if, if someone can't get an ID right now, there, there are so many things, doors that are closed to them. So it's important that, that everyone be able to get an ID. And it's important that we do further tighten our election security. Mm-hmm. It's important that, Everybody, we want to make sure it is easy for Ohioans to vote. We want to make sure that it's just hard to cheat. Well, and I hear you saying that, but I'm wondering, are there specific issues? I know you mentioned the one person who said she couldn't vote because they said she'd already voted. But I mean, in actuality, this is not a state where there's a problem with people cheating in trying to vote. Well, we want to make sure that we are constantly reviewing our legislation to make sure we're doing everything we can. 
Senate Bill 320 has to be assigned to a committee for more discussion and consideration. Hundreds of students walked out of Hilliard Darby High School demonstrating their support for the LGBTQ plus community. Students organized the walkout to protest House Bill 616. If it passes, it would ban both instruction and materials about sexual orientation and gender identity from kindergarten through third grade. 10 TV's Kiana Deitches spoke with people on both sides of the debate. When the clock hit 1 p.m., hundreds of students walked out of Hilliard Darby High School in solidarity. Just outside the campus, Nikki Buskirk walked with them. So many of those students look like my son, and it's important for my son to be able to be himself and all of himself when he grows up, and it's important for them to be able to be themselves. And I just wanted to let them know that they're not alone. Not alone in supporting LGBTQ plus friends and not alone in trying to stop House Bill 616 from becoming law. Sarah Stevenson's daughter was one of the organizers. I told her, make sure you read the bill so that you understand it and you can talk knowledgeably about it. And, um, and I said, if you're still wanting to protest, I said, absolutely, I'll go for it. I'm all for it. But not all adults are for it. I don't know anyone who thinks it's a great idea to be talking to first graders or second graders or kindergarten children uh, in regard to sex education in school. I just don't think that that's the proper role of the school. The bill would restrict both instruction and materials about sexual orientation and gender identity until fourth grade in all public and most private schools. It would also ban critical race theory. Parents are not only the first teachers, you know, we want parents to be directly involved in what goes on in the schools. They have every right to do that. It's their, it's their child. Stevenson says at the high school level, students should have their say, too. They're pretty, pretty astute about things that they want to learn about, um, the conversations that they want to be able to have. So I think that's important that they have a, a, a way to say this is what we want to learn and discuss. It's just important, like I said, that all, the, all students feel safe and included in their school environment. That was Kiana Deitches reporting the bill. So far, it would have to be assigned to a committee before it can be put on the calendar for a vote. The state's largest school district already came out against House Bill 616. The superintendent of Columbus City Schools signed onto a letter condemning the legislation. The letter calls it, quote, shameful and divisive. And the statement goes on to say the bill aims to undermine the district's ability to embrace and support all students fully. You can read the entire statement from the Columbus City Schools District at 10tv.com. Starting this summer, there will be some new rules for hourly workers in Ohio and their overtime pay. A new law defines when you can clock that OT and when you can't. Basically, the biggest change with this law is now that hourly workers will have to opt in with written consent if they want to join a case for unpaid wages. 10TV's Lindsay Mills has what legal experts are saying about the change. Senate Bill 47, as signed into law, prohibits opt-out class actions for overtime violations. That's a really big deal because workers may not want to opt in for a variety of reasons, like they're scared of retaliation. Um, A class action lets them join the case without having to opt in. And this law takes that option away. Others say it streamlines the litigation process. We won't be looking at hybrid lawsuits anymore. We will only be looking at an opt-in format, which is what is done in the federal courts. The law also exempts employers for paying overtime for your commute to and from a work site. 
and performing certain activities that require insubstantial or insignificant periods of time outside work hours. What does that mean for an hourly worker? You know, I, I think if, if we're talking about that portion, there is not a gigantic change for hourly workers because tasks that their employer asks them to do, those are still going to be compensable, just like they would be under the prior version of the law. One thing as a litigator I can tell you is I've never had a lawsuit under just Ohio law based on any of the de minimis or the traveling to and from a principal place of work provisions that this law now kind of clears up and says that you can't sue under this. While some say this is needed clarification, others say there is no benefit for hourly workers. Bottom line, make sure you're on the same page with your boss. This is an excellent time for a conversation between the employee and the employer. And we thank Lindsay Mills for that report. Again, the significant change here is in regard to class action lawsuits of overtime violations. This law takes effect July 6th. It's been about five months since President Biden signed a bill that would give historic funding to the Amtrak rail system. Rail enthusiasts are hoping the Amtrak rail expansion would connect the three C and D corridors, Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati, and Dayton. But what's happening now? A sp- spokesperson for the governor says he's asked the Rail Development Commission to engage with Amtrak to determine the feasibility and the cost of the routes ID'd in the Amtrak Connects Us proposal. A shortage of referees could cause cancellations for your child's next sporting event. After the break, how the Ohio High School Athletic Association is looking to get those numbers up. And still ahead, supplying the classroom not a cheap assignment for teachers. That's why there's a new push to help. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back. Perhaps you noticed this at your child's sporting event, but the state of Ohio is seeing a decrease in the number of officials. 10TV's Brian Somerville explains what the problems are, how the Ohio High School Athletic Association is looking to get the numbers up, and a dangerous growing concern officials have. It just... It's just gotten way, way out of hand. 870 miles from Columbus, Ohio, Christy Howard sits in her office in Mississippi, wanting you to know this is why. Love the game, love the kids, love the environment, love being out there. It's why she started being an umpire 10 years ago. The last four or five, though, she says threats of violence and assault have escalated. The whole parent group was um, extremely rowdy uh, from the get-go. This past Saturday, while being an umpire for a 12-year-old's softball game, a group of parents, she says, became loud and started cursing. Howard had already thrown one parent out of the game by the time the fourth inning came, where a player, she says, slid underneath a tag. She called the runner safe. A parent in the stands called Howard out. That parent was also ejected. And when she was leaving, she turned around and she was like, when you step off this field, I'm going to slap the F out of you. And when the game was over, Howard says that woman was waiting. And then bam, like she was there. And she says, "Um, what do you got to say now? And punch me. Sunday, she posted to Facebook a picture of her black eye and a warning saying why parents see a decrease in officials at games. This is why. 
The post has been shared more than 23,000 times, and the problems she is facing in Mississippi, the same problems school districts are facing right here in Ohio. It's almost turned into an epidemic that, you know, we're scrambling to try to get uh, people to want to do this. Jay Wolf is the athletic director at Olentangy High School. Last week, he posted to Twitter saying games are being played with no umpires. Bo Rugg with the Ohio High School Athletic Association says more is being done to get more officials from upping the pay to schools, putting in officiating curriculum to hopefully in the next few months, putting training classes online. We know at some point we'll gain some momentum on this. Um, the, the bad news, obviously, is that doesn't help us today. Rugg says the number of officials across the country right now is down. Here in Ohio, it's not the worst, but it's not good. Ten years ago, OHSAA documented more than 16,600 officials here in the state. This year... It's just above 13,000. And there's a number of reasons for that, right? I mean, COVID, the economy, sometimes life just gets in the way, sure. But the number one reason I'm told why the number of officials is down, it's you. The bottom line is the biggest, far and away, reason people leave officiating or don't want to go into officiating is because of fan behavior. That ranges, he says, from yelling, cursing, and assaults. You don't agree with calls? That's fine. But the ugliness that's out there is 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 unbelievable. When you look at your eye, is that worth your love for the games? I'm currently struggling. Howard says she's using this moment to call for more legislation to protect officials. And this is why it's needed. In Columbus, Bryant Somerville, 10 TV News. Last June, the Ohio House voted to approve a bill that would increase penalties for assaulting sports officials. House Bill 44 would require a mandatory fine of $1,500 and 40 hours of community service for a misdemeanor offense. The bill has not been approved yet by the state Senate. Tax filing teachers can... They can write off $250 worth of school supplies, but there's a push in Washington to increase that amount. 10TV's Lindsay Mills looks at the difference that change could make. Inside E. Cole Kenwood French Immersion Elementary School in Columbus. Spending money on just those little extra things that make learning fun and relevant. Amy Pace, a third grade teacher. Crayons uses little surprises to make a big impact. And it goes beyond stickers and pencils. I may spend money and go get things that I need to recreate the Polar Express in the room. Even though she says she doesn't think much about it, it all adds up. Right now, teachers can write off $250 worth for taxes. There's new proposed legislation backed by Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown to increase that to $1,000. And teachers like Amy Pace say it would make a big difference. Usually, Amazon is probably my <laughs> number one go-to. On Amazon alone, she spends. Oh, probably way more than maybe a couple thousand dollars a year. While many teachers utilize the convenience of Amazon, they also seek out discount supply stores. Supply stores like Terrific Teaching Tools in Gahanna. Definitely. For the last 12 years, this supply store has been helping teachers from all over. Some drive in from out of state. Any store that's going to offer you a discount, whether it's 10, 20 percent, um, educators usually jump on that. Don't hesitate to go the extra mile. In Columbus, Lindsay Mills, 10 TV News. 
And do you know a teacher who goes above and beyond? Help us honor our classroom heroes, whether your children are learning in person or virtually. Head over to 10tv.com slash heroes. There's a form. Complete that, and it helps us get the teachers the recognition they so richly deserve. They work to keep the roads clear and smooth, but the job comes with a dangerous risk. One ODOT worker details his firsthand experience of getting hit in a work zone. You've been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. You have to carefully monitor your health for the rest of your life. And you have an increased risk of developing cardiovascular disease. Take two. Action. You've been diagnosed with a new purpose, to fight for the amazing life you made for yourself. To look that risk of heart disease square in the face and say, no, not me. You've been given a new opportunity to live. Get started at NoDiabetesByHeart.org. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. National Work Zone Safety Awareness Week just wrapped up. This display is up in front of the ODOT headquarters in Delaware. The 20 cones you see there represent each of the workers hurt or killed last year. There's also a sign that reads, slow down for workers, save a life. This week, at least three ODOT vehicles were hit by other cars. All of the crashes happened in the Columbus area. ODOT says crashes in work zones. Well, that's a major issue. 10 Ashley Bornanson spoke with one man who experienced the dangerous situation himself. Apparently, I was in the way. They sideswiped my vehicle and kept going. Matt Bruning, press secretary for the Ohio Department of Transportation, stresses the importance of work zone safety. I was uh, just coming back to Columbus from a uh, work zone awareness event. He saw the dangers firsthand of what happens with reckless drivers in work zones. The irony, not so funny. Another vehicle struck Bruning while Bruning was driving through the I-70 work zone in Columbus. Police say an officer clocked a vehicle going 73 on a 45 when they struck Bruning. And that's unacceptable. There's no reason anybody should be going that fast in a work zone, ever. The suspect then ran away on foot. Get on the ground! Get on the ground! Down! On the ground! Columbus police body camera shows the suspect's arrest. Uh, at, At those speeds in a work zone... Uh, That's probably not a survivable crash if one of our people get hit. Overnight, two other ODOT vehicles were struck while sweeping I-71 near Morse Road. ODOT reps tell me this is yet another scary reminder of the risks encountered every day in work zones. We had nearly 4,800 work zone crashes in the state of Ohio last year. Bruning says it's critical drivers slow down and pay attention in work zones. Not just for the workers, but for the drivers and passengers, too. Give those crews room to work. Allow that extra space between you and the vehicle in front of you. According to ODOT, statewide, there have already been 71 ODOT vehicles hit so far this year. Bruning's crash isn't included in that number because he's not a road worker. However, that number is almost half of what we saw in total last year. In 2021, 154 ODOT vehicles were hit. In 2020, 125 ODOT vehicles were hit. These are real people who deserve to be able to work in the safest environment possible. That's on us as drivers. In Columbus, Ashley Bornanson, 10TV News. 
This past week also marked Black Maternal Health Week. It's an effort to address the health disparities black moms and their children face every day. In Ohio, the infant mortality rate is three times higher for black babies than it is for white babies. The Eliminating Racial Disparities in Infant Mortality Task Force aims to eliminate the disparities by the year 2030. Representative Catherine Ingram is the co-chair of the Ohio Black Maternal Health Caucus, and she says the first step in fixing the disparity issue is admitting there is a disparity issue. We have to, at first, uh, acknowledge the disparity. And that's one of the things I said to the governor when we were start t- first talking about racism as a public health crisis. And I said to the governor, one of the things that we have to do and why we had the resolution is that we have to first recognize that the disparity exists that black mothers, black babies are dying at a considerably higher rate than uh, other groups of people, especially white people, white mothers and white babies. And so when you look at that, you have to say, it's almost like, uh, and he says, well, why do we have to say that out loud? Uh, People know now things are much better. I said, because you have to say it. It's like an alcoholic. Until you admit that you are an alcoholic, you're never going to get cured. You're never going to go for the real cure. You're going to always uh, still go to the bar and say, I only have one. And our reality is, is that until we admit that racism has created some of what we have today and that the disparities continue to exist, are we ever going to be able to address them? Another bill recently introduced in the House pushes to expand access to mental health care. This legislation would require public hospitals to designate 5% of their inpatient capacity for people seeking mental health care. The representative behind it says she knows this won't solve all the issues, but says it's one thing that can change now. The mental health system in America needs much more systemic reform and Uh, improvement than what this bill or any individual bill can offer. But until that systemic reform happens, we have to do little things uh, within our power to make sure that people are being helped in crisis situations in the short term. The bill does allow hospitals to waive the requirement during emergencies. It is still trying to convey that if the hospital is not at capacity uh, or dealing with a mass disaster, um, if it has, you know, if it's under normal circumstances, which frankly right now, I I think that the stage that we're in with the pandemic is the new normal, um, then then they they need to be responding to patients who are coming to them in crisis. State Representative Monique Smith says she's reaching out to hospitals to see how this change would impact them and to get feedback. Right now, that bill is waiting to be assigned to committee. We do certainly thank you all for joining us on this Sunday. Remember, if it affects you and your family here in Ohio, we are here to make sure those accountable face the state. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Unused prescription opioid pain medicines can spell trouble. Safely dispose of opioids before they can hurt your family. Find a drug take-back option such as medicine drop boxes. Visit www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration.
This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Van Pickler, who is uh, National Policy Advisor for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. How are you? Good. How are you? And thanks so much for having me on your show today. I'm really excited to be here to talk about Invasive Plant Pests and Disease Awareness Month. Thanks for talking to us. And that is uh, what this month is. Tell us what that means and, and what the focus is. So in April, you know, we start to see pests emerge. So these pests, um, we want to highlight the impact of invasive plant pests and diseases, which what they have on our plant health nationwide. And invasive pests are also known as hungry pests. They have no natural predators and left unchecked can quickly spread. So this month is about outreach and asking all Americans to take simple actions to help reduce their spread. Okay. And I guess uh, an example in Ohio that a lot of folks would be aware of, because we've heard so much about it over the last 10 years or so, would be the emerald ash borer. That's an example of what you're talking about, right? Yeah. So emerald ash borer is right now state regulated in Ohio, and um, they attack ash trees. Okay. Can you talk about some other invasive species that folks in Ohio should keep an eye on? Yes. So Asian longhorn beetle, um, that attacks hardwood trees. There's also invasive defoliating moths, and they attack more than 300 species of trees and shrubs. You can report any findings of their egg masses, caterpillars, adult moths, or defoliated trees to federal or state agricultural officials. Okay, and uh, what is uh, the significance of having April be Invasive Plant Pest and Disease Awareness Month? Why April? So why April is is because this is when the time the invasive pests start to emerge. You know, the weather's warmer, so we're all outside enjoying the weather, playing in our backyard, going hiking or starting to garden. So we're asking all Americans to uh, be on the lookout for invasive pests. Uh, we have a website called HungryPest.com. You can go onto the website and look for signs and tips on how to join me in the fight to leave all hungry pests behind. Okay. Another that I've been hearing about lately is the spotted lanternfly, which I understand is posing a threat to the wine industry because of uh, vineyards. Yeah. So for spotted lanternfly, um, in Ohio, you... There is a natural uh, suitable habitat for spotted lanternfly to exist. So you definitely want to be on the lookout for spotted lanternfly and report any signs. And uh, the spotted lanternfly feeds on a wide range of fruit, ornamental, and wood trees, and in particular, a tree called Tree of Heaven. That's its preferred host. So one of the things we're asking is for folks to please uh, make sure you're you're not carrying any uh, plants or products between states and also to buy or gather firewood on site or purchase certified heat treated firewood. There's very simple actions we're asking all Americans to join the USDA in taking to ensure that these invasive pests uh, do not spread. Talking with Van Pickler from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And that is uh, one of the ways that, uh, I guess, the emerald ash borer, as an example, was spreading, is that people were taking firewood from one area of the state to another and maybe, you know, dumping it on the ground for a a campfire. And and there are these insects inside the wood that get out and then they, they spread into the area woods from there. 
Yes, that's correct. So, you know, again, there's some tips that we have. Um, I know I love to spend time around the bonfire with my with my kids. And so I'm really cautious around making sure I do not move untreated firewood. Um, you can buy certified heat-treated firewood. There's um, a label that tells us that it's been certified and heat treated. You can buy regular wood locally, or you can even gather firewood on site if it's permitted at your campground. What's the biggest uh, problem on your radar right now in terms of, you know, ash trees have been dying by the, by the millions, I guess, around the country. Is, is there any new threat or, or a particularly big threat that USDA is worried about right now? Um, you know, on HungryPest.com, um, there's a banner for a, a new pest called uh, box tree moss, um, and right now it's in found in New York. So um, that's something we're paying very close attention to, and we're asking the public to join us in, you know, early detection of all the invasive pests um, and the hungry pests so that you can help us to reduce its spread. And I don't know if this is... Part of this or not, because I think this might be more of a disease that trees are getting, but there's a a problem with American beech trees. Are you aware of that or is that part of uh, what you're talking about? So um, that is not federally regulated. Um, So, um, you know, when you're talking about a disease, there is a disease on our Hungry hungry Pest website called Sudden Oak Death. Um, So... You know, with that and any disease in trees or plants, one of the things we definitely don't want to be doing that's an action is uh, definitely do not take any plants from one location to the other. Or if you're out walking around and there's mud and soil that you get in your boots or in your sneakers, we're asking you to uh, please remove them. But if you're concerned, you can call your state plant health director, which is a USDA employee, for more information on local plant pests or diseases. On, On hungry pests, we have information around who to contact in your state. Okay. And what is the big thing people should be looking for? Should they be looking for holes in trees or, or odd-looking insects or what? Yeah, so it depends on the the, um, the invasive pest, the hungry pest. So for emerald ash borer or for Asian longhorn beetle, you, you want to be looking for uh, D-shaped holes. You want to be looking for also lots of sawdust at the bottom of the tree. And to uh, confirm what you're seeing is a true sign, you can always contact the local USDA plant health director or the Ag Extension Service in your state. Okay. Does global warming have anything to do with uh, what's going on with all this, or does it enhance the threat from invasive species? Well, you know, weather can magnify the impact of invasive pests. So as climate change can increase the level of the plant pest infestations and also disease infection. So that's why it's so important to have early detection and for your listeners to join us in the fight so that we can leave all hungry pests 
behind. And, you know, thehungrypest.com, that website is an amazing resource for everyone to use. There's also education tools and resources for parents um, who have young children. And so um, I really encourage everyone to take a look at hungrypest.com. Okay, Van Pickler joining us. She's with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Thanks so much for the information today. Sure appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, and again, you know, uh, please join us in protecting American agriculture and natural resources. Thank you so much for having me. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.